Hi, welcome to the BCP Cast, the podcast which talks about all things business continuity. I'm James Kanotohulu, and this is our third season. We're doing something a bit different this time. Last season, we had a chat with one person per episode, nice and simple. But this time, we went to the 2018 BCI World Conference, where we spoke to several experts about all things BC related. So, there'll be a few new voices talking about some of the most relevant challenges facing business continuity and how to overcome them. Let me quickly introduce the six people you'll be hearing from. There isn't time to run through every certificate and position they hold between them, but believe me, they know what they're talking about. First, I spoke to Jana Detoni, founder of Panteray, which consults on business continuity. Before that, Jana led technology and operations at J.P. Morgan Chase in Italy for over 30 years. Jana is also the only person in Italy to hold the internationally recognised Fellow of the Business Continuity Institute Certificate. I also spoke to Kate Needham-Bennett, who works as an Enterprise Resilience Analyst for MasterCard. Kate is responsible for the integration of mergers and acquisitions onto the MasterCard Business Continuity, Crisis Management and Technical Recovery programs. Before that, Kate was Business Manager at Needham's 1834, a leading business continuity and crisis management firm. Kate and Jana are also both members of the Women in Resilience Group, which aims to bring more diversity into the business continuity industry. Russ Paramore is Emergency Planning Officer for South Yorkshire Fire and Rescue. Having been a police officer for 30 years, Russ has been improving his department's resilience since 2010. Russ is responsible for business continuity management, protective security, fire service contingency planning, Comar plans, and all matters relating to emergencies and resilience. He's also a member of the Cabinet Office Resilience Direct Working Group. Slightly separate to pure business continuity, but still hugely interesting, I got to speak to world-renowned cybersecurity expert Jessica Barker. Jessica is co-founder and socio-technical lead at Sygenta, a cybersecurity consultancy that advises individuals and institutions. Jessica works with all sorts of different organizations to help them use information more safely. That includes developing cybersecurity strategies, reviewing and creating cybersecurity policies, and designing and delivering cybersecurity training programs. From across the pond, I chatted with Tonya York, a BC specialist from the US who has worked across loads of different sectors in her career. Tonya has worked at companies like Google, McKesson, Charles Schwab and Symantec, giving her a huge amount of experience with resilience planning across different businesses. Finally, I spoke to Thomas Kroll, Senior Manager of Operational Resilience Oversight at Tesco Bank. Thomas has worked at Manchester City Council and HSBC. He's also chaired Manchester Business Continuity Forum, the Scottish Council, and the Emergency Planning Society BCM Working Group. He also helped manage resilience for London during the 2012 Olympics. Thomas brings a wealth of knowledge from his time working across the public and private sectors. To kick off the new season, we're asking what are the best ways to engage people in business continuity? And in our conversations, we found some real gems. Let's be honest. Business continuity is not something that fills most people with tons of excitement. But a good or bad BC plan can be the making or breaking of a company when things do go wrong. So we have a really important issue that most people, understandably, are not engaged with. So how do you get people to think outside of their standard role and actually care about their employer's resilience? 
cybersecurity expert Jessica Barker makes a living from helping people and companies recognize and deflect cyber threats. So what works for her? Well, an obvious place to go when you need to create change in an organization is the top. Yeah, with cybersecurity, one thing we often find is if it's led from the top, then you are going to get the organization shifting more decisively. Um, obviously, if it's led from the top, you're likely to get more budget. If you can get someone from the executive, the board, the senior level to vocally back you, to help you with your awareness raising, maybe to do a short video talking about the importance of cyber or business continuity, whatever it might be, then that's really powerful for people in the organization. It comes back to what's known as social proof. Essentially, um, we look at our peers, we look at other people to guide the way we behave. And people in a position of authority have higher social proof. So if I see you doing something, I'm more likely to mimic that. If I see my boss doing it, I'm even more likely because that's my boss. So if it's good enough for them, it's, it's going to be good enough for me. Okay, this one might seem kind of obvious. You need change to happen, so you ask the boss to tell everyone else to get with the program. But Jessica doesn't talk about dictating to employees. It's a process of getting buy-in across the company, but it needs to start at the top. Jana Detoni, who runs her own business continuity consultancy, stresses the importance of this. To get the buy-in in the organization, you need to get the buy-in of one person, basically. You have to go to the top manager of the company and you need to be brave enough to knock at the door and shake her or shake him up and make sure they do understand that resilience is as important as profits and it's really their concern. It's not something that they can delegate to someone, you know, like, okay, yeah, I have a group of people doing that and they can go on and see clients and, and do damages around. I mean, you have to have resilience in your heart and in your mind, in every angle, in every person, in every function of the company. So you have to convince one person or you have to convince the top management of the company to get the, the buy-in. So how does this look in practice? Tonya York has worked in business continuity for 20 years and seen her share of business incidents. She gives a great example of what an engaged C-suite exec can look like in a time of crisis. As depending on the organization and what's happened to it and the culture, you get a different level of ownership and buy-in. Um, I'm going to use Charles Schwab again. So they experienced an earthquake in 1989 prior to my joining there, right? Um, it was a San Francisco earthquake. It happened during the World Series. I think it was a 6.9. And it was the first one that was ever on TV, right? So everybody saw this and it looked quite frightening. And Schwab was very prepared. They had a backup generator. They were located in the financial district in San Francisco. And they were one of the few companies with the lights on, right? And they had traders that were underneath their desks talking to customers on their phones. And at the time, um, Dave Patrick, I believe he was he might have been the president or the chief operating officer at the time, but he, at the front door of the company, put his arm around people. It would make a big difference if you'd stay and work. He broke into the kitchen. He fed employees. They stayed. They took trades. They actually gained market share during that time because they were up and running. So then when I joined the company, you know, Dave Patrick, it was easy to get him to speak about it and to embrace it. So the company very much embraced it because that became part of their DNA, that was their history. So 
I think you know in, in certain organizations it's uh, just who they are and if what you're doing is so part of their critical mission to the their customers it just makes it easier. Ross Paramore is an ex-police officer of 30 years. In 2010 he became the emergency planning officer for South Yorkshire Fire and Rescue. He was responsible for putting a coherent resilience plan in place that could be picked up by all the different departments. Unsurprisingly, this wasn't an overnight job. So initially, um, that was done at the high level. So basically what I had to do was put into place what I thought was going to be right um, for the organisation, but then going up to our senior management team, our executives, and actually saying, this is what we need to do, this is why we need to do it explaining to them to get them to sign off the policy uh, because once that was done they were agreeing to us actually implementing something and part of the policy was talking about embedding and it was all about people must do certain things that they must test and exercise the plans every year and all that sort of stuff so once i got the buy-in from the top level then actually it became easier to gradually roll things out to to lower levels it wasn't a five-minute job. It probably took about five years, actually, to, to get it to a level where, where people were happy. This is a prime example of how there is no silver bullet to changing habits and culture. Russ illustrates how fire servicemen and women have reacted to BC planning now versus five years ago. Um, five years ago, if you walked into a fire station and picked on the first firefighter that you saw and said, tell me about business continuity, they would probably say, what's that? Uh, why do we need that? Uh, we just deal with emergencies every day. We just put things right when they go wrong, which is, you know, a sort of the attitude that you would have got from most people. Uh, if you went into a fire station today in South Yorkshire and said to anybody, what, what do you know about business continuity? At the very least, they would say, our plan is contained in our grab bag, our grab bag is in such a location, if we have to leave the station this is where we go to, and these are all the documents we need to take with us and, and that's what we're, and all our vehicles go to certain places. So at the, at the very lowest level they know what they have to do if something goes wrong. So that's the progress that's been made over the, over the last sort of few years, but it, uh, it, it wasn't an easy task to do that. Okay, so we know going to the top can be a powerful way to make change, provided the senior management care enough, of course. But companies aren't just execs. The lifeblood of any business are the people on the shop floor, and they're the ones who have to react when things go wrong. So how do you set about winning the hearts and minds of a company's employees? Firstly, before trying to change perspective, I think it's important to understand perspective. Um, so where are they coming from? You know, if you know they don't agree, why don't they agree? But you shouldn't come at it from the perspective straight away that you think they don't agree. Maybe they just don't have time to do it. You know, fundamentally they can see the value in it, so they're not going to disagree with you at that level. But it doesn't mean they're going to have the time, energy um, to get on board with whatever whatever it is you're asking them to do. So understanding at the outset why is really important and if it is a time or resource issue then are you setting up what you're asking of them in such a way where it's hard for them to say no 
So a sense check first on the question that you're putting to them. There's going to be work involved, but are you putting it to them in a supportive manner? That's very different to a lot of organisations where you have practitioners that actually just end up doing the job for the business department, for the management team, because it's too much work to change their mindset and get them on board with your initiative. So there's various different ways you can try and influence uh, over the years. I've come across different strategies. There's always going to be, within any organisation, those that are very supportive of your what you're trying to change you know if you're trying to implement a business continuity capability across the organization there's those that are on board and they they, they might even find it interesting they're great to work with those people and there's those that are kind of don't fundamentally disagree with it but they're somewhat apathetic and they don't have the time and resource which I mentioned and there's those that are just stuck in the mud for whatever reason they just don't want to give you the time of day and as a practitioner it's really nice to spend time with those that are on board dealing with the apathetic people can be quite unrewarding and then depending on your personality as a practitioner sometimes you go and try and convince those that are absolutely against it three different approaches there and if you spend the time with the people that are on board then you're not going to get massive returns because they're already doing it for you it's nice to sit down with them those that are against it, you're never really going to change their mindset because it's deep-seated, deep-rooted in whatever cultural issue they have. Working with those that are apathetic and getting them on board and building up the, the number of people that are on board, the number of departments, the number of business heads that can kind of see the value in it, you start building that up, building that up. So it was originally 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. So you get to a point where most of the organization is actually now on board with whatever it is you're trying to uh, convince them to do. I find this really interesting. We've all come across people whose sole purpose appears to be stopping us from doing whatever it is we need to do. The easy reaction to this is to get angry, get frustrated and give up. Often we instinctively want to focus on converting the naysayers to our way of thinking, but more often than not we end up deadlocked, which helps no one. But Thomas talks about focusing your energy on the people who want to go on the journey with you, using their enthusiasm to create a wave of momentum that takes the business in the direction it needs to go. And the ones who are stuck in the mud? And those that were fundamentally against it usually get kicked along kicking and screaming because it becomes the status quo of how it's done in the organisation. I think fundamentally important is to understand where they're coming from, understand the culture that they're operating in, don't try to go up against that culture, try and work with that culture. The point Thomas makes is to understand the environment you're entering. A business is its own ecosystem. It's up to us in business continuity to learn where we can make a positive impact rather than trying to be all things to all people. That way lies ruin. You know, to those of us working in the industry, these topics are absolutely fascinating and we find them really interesting and really exciting and then sometimes we don't understand why other people switch off. And other people can have, for example, the cybersecurity, a perception that it's really dry, that it's deeply technical, that it speaks a language they're never going to understand. And also, in cybersecurity, we can very much blame the victim. 
So we have had a tendency as an industry to point the finger at people and say people are the problem and um, you know people clicking links, people losing information, it's people that are the problem and they're the weakest link has been a narrative for a while and I really try and challenge that because if we want to engage with people we have to empower them. If we tell them they're the problem they're going to switch off, no one wants to listen to that. Of course we can't expect people to be as enthused with business continuity as the pros. So it's up to us to be creative in how we show people the value of BC. What's in it for them? We have to show them how it's relevant to them. And if we can do that in a way that is exciting and engaging and is going to get them to go and talk about it at home and to their other colleagues, that's ideal for me. So giving them examples that are relevant, explaining the why, why it matters to the organization, to them as people, and also a key thing in cybersecurity for for me and for my company is delivering awareness raising that is based on demonstrations. So we're not just talking about attacks in theory, we're showing them if you click on a link, this is what the attacker can do, you know, so we, we set up a spear phishing email, we will fish ourselves, and then we will show them, this is what you see on the victim screen, nothing changes, this is what you see on the attacker screen, this is everything they can get to. So you bring it to life for people. You know, making people aware of the possible um, with spoofing of emails. You know, is one thing it can look legitimate, that doesn't mean it is. Um, encouraging people to um, recognize when they get an email that's out of the ordinary, that actually to double check that just because something comes from someone with authority doesn't mean you can't politely challenge and check on that. It's all of these kind of things that are about awareness, they're about behavior, and they're about company culture. We've all been in PowerPoint presentations where we fantasized about stabbing ourselves in the neck with a biro just to make the suffering stop. The best change makers know this isn't the way to go. Show Trump's tell almost every time. If you can put someone in the situation and make them understand how it feels, how it looks, how it sounds, then you have impact. Russ agrees. As I said earlier, it's, it's a lengthy process, yeah. but it's about talking to people, it's about getting people to understand why they're doing something, that it's actually going to help them to do their job in the long run, and it's going to make sure that they can continue to do that. So we've, we've done that at manager, middle manager, and lower levels, department levels. Then we put an emphasis on all employees being involved in the process at some stage in their own departments. Russ needs to engage with people across dozens of departments, and each fire station is run in a slightly different way according to its chief. So what can be done to get everyone on the same page? So all the departments create their own operational level plans. My job is to check that and make sure that they're all okay, and actually that they're compatible with everybody else's plan as well. So I've got 18 departments and 22 fire stations, so that's 40 plans that I have to check. We don't want every plan to say, if we have to evacuate, we're going to go to this location, because otherwise we end up with everybody going to the same place. So that's, that's part of what we do. But then what we do as well, we do internal audit. Uh, I'm a certified lead auditor, so I, I audit the plans. And we do two departments and two fire stations every year. And that's the learning from that is shared with everybody so they can all pick up on, on what's happened with that. And also every department and fire station has to do two exercises a year, what they have to do themselves. 
Uh, and then every so often we will do a service-wide exercise. So we, we last year closed down our headquarters and took 160 people into our training centre for the day and put them through an exercise there. Um, we did a, a, an exercise at training centre a couple of years before that. So occasionally we will do something, we won't give people any notice that it's going to happen and we just say, you know, today you're working out, we've closed this building and we go and set a scenario. So, but that engages everybody and it gets people to actually have a go at it and then they come to us and say, actually, that won't work. And they're telling us things won't work. So then we say, well, okay, so what are you going to do about it? So because they have the input into the design of the plan, actually, when we get the published plan, they, they look at that and think, yeah, that makes sense because actually we suggested it. So that, there are ways of working that you, you, but it's building up that trust between everybody, really. Now, somebody working in the fire department could have very different motivations to someone working in, say, accounting. What sparks change in people varies hugely. So what are the best ways of finding out those motivations? Thomas has worked in the public and private sectors and has some words of wisdom. Everybody talks about how private sector is driven by bottom line. Most private sector businesses, especially those that are listed uh, on an exchange with fiduciary duty, they're there to make money for the, st- for the shareholders. Public sector doesn't have that same fiduciary responsibility. It's there to provide a quality of service, uh, provide a service and hopefully at the right quality level. Uh, NGOs and third sector, similar challenges. So everybody talks about that difference, but what's not talked about enough is the cultural differences between the two environments. There's a lot of people that switch between sectors, but if you were to take a sample of public sector employees and a sample of private sector employees, they are different type of people that entered the workforce, maybe for different reasons. They have different motivations and that directly translates to how you go about communicating with them, engaging with them and trying to motivate them when you're trying to deliver business continuity. It's very interesting in public sector that people aren't motivated by the need for a bonus. There are a lot of people that I worked with when I worked in public sector for a large city council. They had been in the job for a very long time. 25, 30, 35 years of providing service to the city and incredibly passionate about it. They'd seen various restructures come through the organisation and there was a disconnect between Town Hall, which is this corporate centre, and some employees work 25 years and never step a foot in Town Hall because they've been working in XYZ Depot providing services to that part of the city and that was their passion. So I, as somebody from Town Hall charged with doing business continuity, would uh, turn up at the depot and I'd just be this 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 suit from the Town Hall. <laughs> so I quickly learned that I should dress differently, I should act differently and what I tried to do was show interest in what they'd been doing for 20 years in their job there. and some of the most valuable business impact analysis I did was walking around uh, whether it be a depot 
even did a BIA for a crematorium, which was very interesting. And you're not sitting down at a desk, you're actually just walking around with the foreman that's worked there for 20 years and say, okay, tell me your stories. And that meant something to them, that somebody was showing an interest. So that's just a little insight from public sector. Difference from public sector and private sector, both have very motivated employees. Sometimes those motivations are different. I think it's more apparent in public sector that people are there to provide a public service. And if you can understand that and engage with them, engage, they're very empathetic. And if you can engage with that empathetic approach, the reasoning, what motivates them, then you can be more successful instead of just trying to overlay some methodology on them. You're not just dealing with the chief exec. A business continuity plan lives or dies on how engaged employees are. And that means a business lives or dies by how engaged employees are, outside of their day-to-day -day role. I think Tonya and Kate Needham-Bennett, who looks after business continuity for MasterCard, sum it up pretty nicely. Like anything, it's what's in it for them, right? So helping them understand why it benefits them to participate in the program. So um, if they end up owning stock in the company, right? Uh, if, if you have some kind of a business interruption and your stock price drops and maybe your company stock is 25% of your retirement plan or something, right? Then that has a personal resonance. Additionally, connecting with their value, values, right? So people can be very motivated personally by that and really understanding their constraints and trying to also create ways to highlight and reward people who are working in the program. So really doing what any good leader or manager does in terms of manage their employees, but it, the scope of that is you know broader within the organization. And, um, and that's what I found that's been successful for me. Yeah, I think across the company as well, you have to get the awareness and get them thinking for themselves, what if? so that they almost start doing business continuity as a natural part of their job, rather than it coming authoritarian relatively from another, yeah. from another department or being told this is, these are the tasks that you need to complete. Instead, it becomes them interacting with you and uh, feeling like it's part of what their job is. That was the first episode of the BCP cast, season three. Thanks for joining and taking the time to have a listen. If you found it interesting, give us a tweet or a share on social media, or recommend us to a friend. There'll be a new episode coming out soon, so keep an ear out.